the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. podcast. Please like the podcast, podcast. and subscribe podcast. to this channel. Podcast. Thank you. Podcast. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from Amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. The very best way to promote your podcasts. Podpage makes it easy to create a podcast website with just a few clicks. Every page is optimized to be found on Google and it stays up to date forever. For more information visit podpage.com. The future of podcast promotion. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is an American author who has recently published her first book, Ruthie Chisholm. Welcome, Ruthie. Welcome to my podcast series. How are you? I'm doing well, Nigel. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. I hear an accent. Where do you live? In New York, New York City. I was actually born in New York, in Harlem, born and raised in Harlem. So what was it like growing up in Harlem? In Harlem, um, when I was growing up there, it was, uh, you know, it was almost like a, like a plate of delicious meals. Cause there was always, there was a lot of excitement going on and you saw a lot of the, the black culture and the just children playing and the laughter of sound. And, and then, you know, there were people that would play music on the street auditioning for a the Apollo, into, uh, you know, to be on the Apollo Live. And, or there were people on the corners, you know, guys doo-wopping, singing songs. And, and then you always had your little old church ladies who were always gathered together, you know, <laughs> trying to collect money for whatever need they felt their church had. And um, it, it was, it was a, a good place to grow up because it was so different. And, on, and really, I only saw people that looked like me. You know, I really didn't see much of, of anyone else, unlike the Harlem that we know today where, where gentrification has taken over and so forth. But it was a, a fun place, a fun place to grow up and, you know, running through the parks and running through the, the, the fire hydrants were actually, the, we used them for water sprinkles. And that, that was kind of like our backyard. Our backyard was a concrete jungle. So we made do with things. And it, it was, wasn't that bad at all because when that's all you know, you think that's, it's the best thing ever. But it was a, a fun time growing up there. So you are a new author. What inspired you to write your book? Well, I wrote Sister Knit because there was a need for a simple story of women of color who knit. And most people thought that the book was to teach you how to knit. And what actually inspired me to write the book is that going, live, working in New York, living in New York, going back and forth on the train, the rail train to work, I would see a Caucasian woman sitting in front of me every day and she was always reading a book, a, a love story, a romance or what have you, a history book. And for about a month, she would start reading. She started, she would have knitting books, but they were not books to teach you how to knit. They were story books, you know, and I looked at the titles of these different books and I went to the bookstore and I purchased them to read them. 
and I flip through and I read them and I see all the characters were Caucasian women, each one of them having a separate story of their own, but none of the characters were women of color, not one. So I did some research, searching in Barnes and Noble, searching online and searching other places. This is back in 2011. And there were no books on the bookshelves for black women, a fictional story, who knit and who had each, each character had a different story and, and what brought them together. And I, since I could not find that, I knew that I wanted to write a book so that women that look like me and other women of color could find the stories that included them, that was all about them and only for them as well as others. And so that's pretty much what inspired me. So I started writing the book slowly in 2012 and just slowly building up each character and thinking about how I was going to start the book and what, what would it entail and who were the characters and how would they meet, how would they come together. But each character is a knitter. That's, how, that's what inspired me because there were no books. And still to this day, from what I understand, mine is the first one. So how long did it take you to actually write the book and get it published? It took me, actually, I think about six to seven years. I had actually sent out several query letters to different publishers. And a lot of them, of course, you get the typical, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not taking on any more clients. And then as I started to continue to write it, and then I would send to other agents, and I started to find agents of color. But by that time, the Amazon and other entities of independent publishing were taking hold. And it was sort of pulling down the traditional way that books were being published. So many of those agents said to me, they said, this query letter you wrote, Ruthie, is absolutely beautiful, but I cannot take on any more clients due to the decline in the traditional method of publishing. And they said, please, you should just go to Amazon. You should just go to or, or an independent publisher, Lulu or one of them, and just do it on your own. The book does have a place in this world. It does have a place to be on the bookshelves of many people. But their companies, these big conglomerate companies, were, were kind of, you know, just kind of declining because, there was, because of the, the use of the Internet and in, independent publishing. So... All in all, it took about a good six to seven years to actually um, get the book published. But it, it's been a journey that's been worth the wait, in my opinion. It was worth the, 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 the time that it took. It was yet right on time. So did you self-publish in the end? Yes, I did. Published through Amazon. And I had two fantastic editors that worked with me. And it was, the, the, the project itself was completed on August the 4th. So... But it, I did, I self-published, and I'm really glad I did go this way. Really glad I did. And one of the top uh, agents uh, in New York City, a woman of color, Marie Brown, was absolutely amazing. Who That was my last query letter. And she says, you must do this. Do this online. Do it, do it online. Do it independent. Because, um, again, she said, it's fantastic work, but she couldn't take on any more clients and was struggling with the ones that, that she had, again, because hitting, going to different publishing houses, the big ones, you know, she said, I don't want your work to just sit and sit and sit in anyone's pile. So um, I ended up self-publishing and I'm glad I did. Well, that's the route I took with my first book. So you say that your book was published on August the 4th. 
So yeah. when and where will your book launch take place? It will launch in the UK <laughs> so on September the 19th through the Global uh, Black Bookcase with Dee Bailey. And here in New York, we've been trying to actually set up some, some book signings and rooftop launches, but due to COVID, we're having some struggles with that. So the book has been selling. And so what we've been doing, what I have been doing, I've just been doing a lot of um, marketing through different platforms of Instagram and, you know, Zoom gatherings, because people have already read the book and wrote fabulous reviews, trying to come up with the proper, some type of way to actually getting a good launch here, whether we do it at my home or whether we do it, uh, Harlem has invited us to come to a lounge to ha but again, it's due to COVID, we're trying to figure out how to, uh, how to get this done. But in the meantime, I'm very grateful that the books are, they are selling. Someone mentioned, uh, someone was kind enough to mention the book at, at his company to at his town hall meeting to over 850 people. So they started purchasing the book as well. So it's kind of taking off a little bit. It has like a little wings of its own and it's, it's taking off. It's launching, it seems like on its own in different, different areas. But, um, and I'm very happy about that. But here in New York, we are trying to, um, just trying to figure out to do a in-person launch where people can actually come. Of course, we'd have to practice social distancing. But um, right now, we're just taking it one day at a time, and the books are selling, and we're trying to get the word out as quickly as we can. And uh, as soon as we, it did launch, people started purchasing right away. So this is your first solo book. But I yes. understand you were a contributor to a book written in memory of the late Dr. Betty Shabazz, wife of the civil rights legend Malcolm X. How did you get involved in that? That uh, actually happened... Back in, um, I believe that was early 90s, 1997, I was uh, at Fordham University here in New York working on my master's degree in adult education. And the facility, the staff facility, we were about to graduate and we were considering who we would get to be our keynote speaker. And the facility at Fordham University a private university. They threw out several names and um, I threw out the name of Dr. Betty Shabazz. And everyone agreed, but no one wanted to take the first steps to get in touch with her. So I said, I will do it. I know where she teaches. And at the time she was teaching at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York. I wrote her a letter. And within about three to four days, she called me. And once she called me, she, you know, she knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted her to come to be the keynote speaker. She agreed to meet with me and to talk with me. And it, it just, it just rolled. It was, I think it was something that was just simply meant to be. And uh, so in May of 1997, uh, she, we met, we talked. She spoke to me about, of course, civil rights. She spoke to me about the importance of education. And she spoke to me about her, hus her late husband, Malcolm, Malcolm X. And she, of course, agreed to be the keynote speaker at Fordham University uh, in the city. And that's pretty much how this, 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 this union, if you will, or this little friendship of ours had be, began. And um, it was very sad that the following month of that same year is when she, she, was, she, was, she passed away. And when she passed away, it was June. And to my surprise, I live in Yonkers, New York, and so did Betty Shabazz at the time. And I got phone calls from 
Suddenly, the New York Daily News, from editors of different magazines and newspapers, they were calling me because they said, we understand that you, Ruthie, were one of the last people to speak with her. And, um, and, and I suppose I was, because we, we spoke very often after the graduation, which was in May of 1997. Betty Shabazz would call me in, in the night, two, three in the morning. Oh, Ruthie, I, I thought of something. I just wanted to tell you this and remind you of that. And she spoke to me a lot about how, uh, how to handle myself in corporate America and moving forward with education and things like that. So once the Daily News got a hold of, of you know, I, I guess they got a hold of how many people, uh, who did she speak to the last three, four weeks of her life? And I was one of those people. And um, once uh, this woman by the name of Jamie Foster Brown, she gave me a call. She was the founder and uh, creator of a magazine called Sister to Sister. She was actually putting together this book and she asked me if I would be a part of it. And it included, you know, um, many women like the, the late Whitney Houston, uh, the late T-Boz and several other business women. Um, it was 29 women together. We were asked to write our, write our little piece of, of history or the moment that we shared with or the time we spent with Dr. Betty Shabazz. So I was very, very fortunate to have written six pages in that book. And they kept every word, um, whereas most, some of the other people, they gave them a paragraph or what have you, but my full six pages, I was very honored, very, very honored that all of it was there and not, not one word was, was taken out. So it was a pleasure to have known her, an honor to have known her and to have spent some time with her. And, uh, and I cherish everything that she taught me in that very brief time that we known, had known one another. I also understand you spent several years as a movie publicist. How did you get involved with that work? Uh, that is something I've always been interested in film, always, from the time I was a child. You know, I think everyone in the world may have a, you know, a fa if not a favorite book, they have a favorite movie. So, um, or, or if not both, you know, and some books turn into movies. I um, actually became a movie publicist, uh, I believe that was like 19, maybe 91. And um, under the time of, at the time, actually working for Warner Brothers Films, I was part of the DC Comics division. So I, you know, worked on with many artists from the Batman and Superman and all of that. And then the opportunity came up to, to work in the film division. And film was always just something that I always loved. And even to this very day. So I was, I went and interviewed. So I just made a lateral move from one division of Warner Brothers into the film division, but I felt so much at home there because uh, I was, again, always being interested in films and had the opportunity to work with some of the, the best actors around, you know, from work also with, with speaking of Dr. Betty Sebaz, worked with um, Spike Lee on the film Malcolm X and worked uh, with Denzel Washington and so many, just so many uh, talented artists, you know, and so even worked on the Harry Potter films and, and um, just many, many films. So that happened. It was just literally applying for something and I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I, I was never a starstruck person and part of the job was you could not be starstruck. You couldn't just run up to a celebrity and say, hey, can I take your picture, you know? So I, I've worked on many movie premieres and it was, it's uh, 
been a, it's been a blast. It was really, really just fun and a very, a good learning experience because I, you know, you see celebrities and you just think they've got it together and all the glitz and everything. And, and to my surprise, I, um, I was fortunate enough to have been a confidant to many of them. Um, you know, sometimes they just want to tell you how they're really feeling. They're smiling in the camera, but two seconds later, they're just tired. They're bored. They wish their life was literally something else than being a movie star, at least for that far. And then when the camera's on, they're on. When the camera's off, sometimes they just want a simple life of going fishing or just going to have a picnic or just, you know, so listening to people and understanding that, you know, everything that, that glitters is not gold. But it was a very interesting time for me to be a publicist because I learned so much work with uh, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett, um, Whitney Houston at the time, so many people. And it was just, it was a fabulous, just fabulous. And, and because of that, you know, I still have many of those contacts from those days because we've stayed in touch and then working along with uh, a lot of the different editors uh, and, and writers from the, the trade papers, the Hollywood Reporter, the Daily News, uh, Page Six, you know, it's all, it's all one big, it's all one big beast put together, but it was a fantastic job. Fantastic. So what other interests do you have, Ruthie? I love actually, of course, knitting. I love gardening. I have the best garden in my neighborhood. <laughs> I am told that by my neighbors and my garden will last me all the way until November. I take a spring garden and make it into a fall garden and turn it into a pumpkin garden, you know, and, um, and I love creating. I love coloring. Um, my mother used to color Back in the early 60s, my mom had a coloring book and crayons. So before it became very popular now, they call it this adult coloring and painting. I watched my mom do that in like 1960, 61. <laughs> so I, I believe I picked it up from her. So I, I love painting and coloring. I love home designing. I love working with my hands. I like the feel of, of the dirt in my hands with planting. I love growing vegetables. I love painting a house, whether it's inside the house or outside the house. You know, I, I just enjoy creative things. And of course, I, I love reading. I absolutely love reading. So what are your plans for the future? What is on your bucket list? Well, on my bucket list, I would say first, I think I would love to buy a home in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. <laughs> I would like to do that. I would like to, I actually would just like to go sailing. I like to go wind sailing. And um, I've been out on boats several times. But for my bucket list, I think I would just love to spend right now, just to spend more of my life just walking on the beach or just planting and gardening. I just want a nice, easy, just an easy, comfortable life. And, and maybe I can drop things in the bucket as I go along, you know, or, or pull things out as I go along. But as long as I can be around the things that I love, as far as gardening and knitting and planting and movies and, and, and flea markets and talking with people and meeting people, I think my bucket list will be full of surprises as I go along. So how can people contact you? They can reach me through uh, my email right now, uh, which is sisterknit and, at gmail.com. And that is spelled S-I-S-T-A-H-K-N-I-T at gmail.com. I can also be reached uh, on Twitter at Chisholm45. Chisholm45, I have that's the second email, Chisholm45 at AOL.com and Sister Knit. You can also look me up on Instagram under Sister Knit. 
Ruthie in New York, America. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nigel. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Another In Conversation podcast coming soon.